Hey, welcome to night school. I believe it's a Wednesday. It is a Wednesday. Uh, you know, I was thinking tonight about simulation theory. I'm thinking about simulation. You ever think about simulation theory? Because the world's getting so strange and confusing and downright unbelievable that we must be living in a simulation. Did you say assimilation? As in assimilate? I said assimilation. That's a funny one because people say that. They say, you ever think about how like the fact that things are getting just weirder and weirder? You ever think that maybe we're living inside a simulation? And it's not that I reject the idea or think that the person saying that is stupid. Because usually it comes from people that I either like or kind of like. I know one of the most famous people who pushes that and doesn't push it. It's not like he's like trying to tell the world, no, you must believe that we're living in a simulation. Have you, dis- have you, uh, have you discovered the simulation yet? Why not? You know, it's not like they're adamant about it. But you know, one of the more famous people is Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, who I like. You know, I like Joe Rogan. You know, he is what he is. You know, he's not a bad guy. You know, I wouldn't say I'm like some Joe Rogan fan in the sense that I'm like, dude, he's the coolest guy. He's just, he's a vessel and he's done a good job with his, with what he does, considering that it's, it's not meant to be anything. And it's funny to see people kind of project onto him so much. And that's really what they do. But I'm not, this isn't a Joe Rogan review here, but he's one of the more famous people and, and people of a like mind. They tend to be secular atheists who have gone out there to some degree. They've like taken their minds out there. I know with him, it's often people who are proponents of psychedelics like that. And I've given my criticisms of that way of thinking and the emphasis on psychedelic use. I've given enough criticism on that because it plays a role in what I'm about to talk about here. But those guys will be like, you ever think maybe we're living in a simulation? And I always laugh when I hear that, though, because it's it's presented as if it's some sort of new realization. Oh, things are getting so weird and confusing, and it, I don't even really believe reality anymore. Life is getting more and more surreal, which it always has been. Do you not think, because like, we look back at old photos of people, like you see a photo of people from 1920, and you forget that there were people back then who were watching events develop around them. They were watching changes. I mean, in some ways, more monumental changes. You think about the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the auto- automobile and the telephone. And while they may not have used the word simulation, there were certainly people back then in these old-timey photos. It's not like people in photos back then were like, hey, everything's normal. Oh, the world just feels normal. Like, think about when World War II was brewing, or any major war, major world event. But it's not like they were sitting there being like, oh, World War II is erupting. This is total, this feels totally normal. Nothing feels strange and surreal. They were, of course, experiencing the same sensations because those are eternal. They're universal and eternal. You know, maybe I'm going out on a limb and I'm assuming something, but I don't think that changes. And if you read religious texts, if you study, you know, spiritual scripture, it's like all of this is in there. All of these ideas are in there. The idea of simulation theory is in there. And that's one of the reasons I laugh, because you think about the idea of the Maya. Not the civilization, but the idea of the Maya in Hinduism. Basically, the gods have created this false reality 
comprised of illusion and we experience it as earthly beings. Doesn't that sound kind of like a simulation? They were they came to that conclusion or they came up with that idea. That idea is present in Hinduism because there were people back then who were experiencing the same sensation that the guy now who says, oh, we're, I think we might be living in a simulation. They were experiencing that same sensation. And they were describing it in a spiritual context. Buddhism deals a lot with it, which shouldn't be surprising given Hinduism does as well. But it's funny that people come to that idea through the lens of secular atheism. And so many people are recognizing now, I mean, I see this come up again and again, so I don't feel like I need to hammer it home as much as I might have felt the need to in the past. But just that secular, secular atheism and liberalism too, and they often go hand in hand. You know, you can see where that has taken on religious characteristics. And everybody points that out. Oh, the left is a religion. Oh, do you see how they're worshiping Coronivi? Oh, do you see how social justice has become a religion? Yeah, the people have a tendency. Religion is a placeholder word. It's not that it's become a religion, but it's become that same thing to people. And it has. And I've pointed that out before when I talk about climate change, where whether you believe in climate change or not doesn't really make a difference. It's an eschatological belief. It's an apocalyptic belief. And no matter what you believe or don't believe, it turns out as a living human being on earth, you eventually take on beliefs. You eventually take on some kind of faith. It's very difficult to just have an absence of belief. So, of course, these secular, atheistic, liberal views are going to have their own faith. They're going to have their own belief system. Because you interact with very few of the thoughts that are actually in your head. You know, the things that, for example, a political ideology is actually interacting with, like, rather... The things that somebody who has a particular political ideology is interacting with on a day-to-day basis don't really correspond to most of what they're thinking. When you see somebody going off about politics, very rarely are those things that actually factor into their daily practical lives. They might factor into the lives of other people they know or they hear about, but it's, it, it takes a certain level of faith. Because usually very few of the things that are going on in their head are part of their daily lives. And because they take on this ideology, they start believing that those things are influencing their daily lives. And maybe some of them are, but we know many of them aren't. But it's interesting to see where there's not an absence of belief. It's just a new set of beliefs. We can see where atheism isn't just the absence of faith in Christ or the absence of religion in someone's life. As that trend has continued, we've seen where it's a whole new set of beliefs. And it might not be informed by the atheist identity, but we can see where that attaches itself to other identities, to other ways of thinking. And we can see that science has become a faith. But uh, it's funny to me, though, to watch that develop because... Many people are noticing it now, and I think the last couple of years have brought it to the forefront, where even a fairly 
average thinker can look at what's going on and say, oh, you know, this kind of reminds me of a religion. But it's also reminiscent of a religion of a religion in the sense that they believe in apocalypse, just like every religion, just like every mythology. They believe that there is some sort of eschatological event and that it might happen in our lifetimes, that it's getting closer and closer. Because that was the thing I experienced growing up is evangelical Christians were very dominant culturally. And the idea was that they believe that rapture is coming. They believe that the events foretold in the book of Revelations is coming not just in the distant future. They believe it's happening in their lifetime and they see certain events play out around the world and say, oh, I mean, that happened with Hurricane Katrina. When Hurricane Katrina happened, there were a bunch of evangelical Christians who were like, oh, it's a biblical flood. It's a biblical flood. Now, when a flood happens, what do we hear in the news? What do we hear from most of our liberal friends? It's, oh, climate change. There's no way to actually measure that. You know, I know science tries to. And maybe that maybe there is something in there. I'm not even outright denying a connection there between climate change and natural disasters. But it's funny to me how no matter what your belief is or your alleged non-belief, you believe in an eschatological event and you believe it will happen in your own lifetime. And when you see natural disasters, you believe that it is an indicator that corresponds to those eschatological beliefs you have. So it's funny to see that develop. But another one is this simulation theory. Oh, it feels like we're living in a very strange, surreal, non-reality. Huh, you know, I'm a secular atheist. There's no way that I can possibly come to understand that through Hinduism or Buddhism. And I don't know, I'd have to think about it, whether Christianity has a similar description. I'm sure there's something in there. I don't think this was lost on Christianity, even if it wasn't addressed as directly. I mean, I guess the idea of God being created by God isn't that far off. The book of Genesis isn't that far off from a simulation idea that God created a man in his image. He created a simulation of himself, so that's in there. I don't think I'm stretching it at all to make that connection. But it's funny that a secular atheist is like, well, I'm, I'm part of a new branch of belief. I don't have faith in these scriptures, in these ideas that other people have believed in and practiced for thousands of years. But yet they come to the same conclusion in their own terms. And that's why I'm not saying it's a stupid idea unto it itself. Like, it's not a stupid idea to say, hey, maybe we're living in a false reality that is actually some sort of reflection of a larger reality, as above, so below. Um, you know, that's not a stupid idea unto itself, but why I jab it in the ribs a little bit with my pointiest finger is that my pinky? I think my pinky might be the pointiest. So I jab it in the ribs with my pinky. I've got kind of pointy pinkies. They're curved and pointy. Like if I hold my pinkies up right next to each other, they curve very sharply. I know you, I know you needed to know that. But uh, 
you know, the reason why I jab, like when people say, oh, a simulate, you ever think we're living in a simulation? It's because they say that like it's some sort of new idea. Like, I just realized this. And they're using contemporary terms to describe it. Like, we live in a world of computers, so we're going to use the idea of a simulation, a computer simulation, I guess. Because you think about what is a simulation as we understand it today, a, a video game, a computer simulation. So we use our current technological understanding of like, how, how do we generate a fake world? Well, we do a little, what we call doing a little world building. It's called doing a little world building. We do world building. We do it on computers. We make games. We make other forms of simulation that are meant to show trends. They're meant to mimic reality in some way. Not perfectly, sometimes very imperfectly, but it's still supposed to be a representation of something real. And so you see right built into that idea of maybe we're living in a simulation. Even though people are seeing it through the lens of modern technology, through computers, they're still kind of hitting this point where they're like, you know, something doesn't feel real about this. This feels kind of fake. And what do you think the Maya is? That's exactly what the Maya is. It's saying, hey, I'm starting to realize that reality is fake. I'm starting to realize that this isn't entirely real. I can't prove it, but I just have this sense deep down. The way events are transpiring, the way my life is playing out, when you actually start to notice things, when you detach yourself and simply observe the reality around you, it's hard not to feel that somewhere deep down that we are living in an illusion. There is something illusory. And this is hammered home in Buddhism. The idea that we are bubbles floating down a stream, that there is an inherent emptiness, that we're just floating on the surface of the Dharma. And there's no actual real substance to that because it's all an illusion. That is one of the central points that's made in Buddhism. You don't hear people talk about it quite as much. I mean, you do if you're interested in the subject. But you don't hear about it in Western pop Buddhism very much. Follow your bliss. Oh, the reason I meditate is to feel good. Oh, the reason I meditate and do yogi is so that I just feel happy and good about my life. Nothing wrong with that. But it's funny how our, our vision of Buddhism, I don't want to say it's been tainted, but why not? Let's say it's been tainted. Let's go ahead and say it's been tainted by that Western pop Buddhism. And very rarely, like I, I've known Buddhists my entire life. You know, I live in Western Washington, you know, through relatives of mine as a kid. I knew a lot of hippie type people. It's been familiar to me. I live now in Olympia, Washington, where there's a lot of this type of thing, a lot of it. Very rarely do I hear this discussed, and maybe it's best saved for those who are in the know or those who are open to it. You know, it's not something you just want to go up to somebody and randomly talk about. Oh, hey, did you know that, uh, that there's an inherent emptiness to life, but it's not a bad thing? And we're just these temporary bubbles of nothing floating on the surface of the Dharma, which is the core reality. 
but that core reality is comprised of shifting shadows that actually represent a formless nothing too. I'm just making that up as I go. If that sounded like poetry, well, it's, it's actually improv. But you can't just go talk to somebody about that. It's much easier to be like, you ever think we're living in a simulation, dude? You ever smoke a joint? You, you ever take uh, psychedelics and the, you think about how we're living in a simulation? It's much easier just to say that and be like, you ever think how we're living in a computer within a computer? But it's funny the level of contemporary narcissism to that, especially the arrogance or the audacity of thinking that that's some sort of fresh idea, that that's not something that has been understood and observed since time immemorial, that a lot of spiritual subject matter is derived from that basic conclusion. And I don't want to call it a conclusion because who knows, who knows what all this is. But it's interesting to me that so many different people have gotten that same sense in so many different ways in so many different places. But you can see where like when somebody derives part of their identity, and especially when an entire culture or subculture derives its identity from not believing what those people believe because it's silly, how they eventually reach some of the same conclusions, like reaching the conclusion that, hey, the world's going to end, or rather the earth, our world is going to end. Whether it's climate change, whether it's Ragnarok, whether it's the end of the Kali Yuga, and on and on, whether it's rapture, no matter what it is, we get this sense that, hey, the world is ending, the sky is falling. And so it doesn't seem to matter what you actually believe in or how you define it. It seems that you inevitably start to feel that way. And you measure it in your own way. And someone could say, yeah, but the, those other people who think there's an apocalypse didn't use science. Yeah, I get it. People in Scandinavia, people in India, people in the Middle East, they might, they might think there's an apocalypse too, but we measure our apocalypse using science. That's not the point. The point is that you all think the apocalypse is coming. The point is, is that you have faith in something that is informing you apocalypse is not only coming, but it's imminent. And we have to repent. We must repent in the face of the eschaton. That's the point. It doesn't matter how you measure it. It doesn't matter if you are more convinced of your apocalypse than them. Because they feel the same way about you. When you think Christians are stupid for thinking rapture is, is going to transpire in our lifetimes... They're looking at you and thinking climate change. And, that, and it goes both ways, though. I mean, it's like you look at a Christian and you say, like, an, ev an evangelical Christian, and you say, well, don't you realize they believe in it, too, in their own way? Don't you realize that they also believe in an imminent apocalypse? You might have differing views as to how to cope with that or deal with it. But uh, it, you guys both believe it's going to happen. You just have different words for it. You have a different way of looking at it. And for me, it's like, 
I get the same sense too. I get a sense that the world's ending. I don't know about in my lifetime. I'd like to be here for that, if that's true. If I, got, if I get to be here on the day the world officially ends, man, I'm lucky. I wouldn't trade places with anybody. If I, Eric Stonefelt, get to be here on planet Earth as a living human being on the day the, the world officially ends, as if it's going to be just one day. Because when I look back at my teenage years, I had this epiphany when I was about 14 or 15, where I was like, oh, the apocalypse is gradual. And I never went anywhere else with the idea. But it was an early epiphany that relates to this subject where I just had this moment. I I think I was in my bedroom doing something at my desk. I don't know if I was drawing or doing homework, doing something at my desk in my childhood home. And I just thought to myself, oh, the apocalypse is gradual. I don't know what led me to realize that. But it was just a moment. But I get the same sense, too, that there is something there to that idea, and we all get that sense at some point. No matter how we believe it or interpret it, we all have some sort of faith in the idea of the eschaton. And so it's funny to me that we split hairs over it. And yeah, people have different approaches. I mean, I know from listening to Buddhist talk, there's an idea that, well, everything dies, everything ends. So we might as well prepare ourselves for that. And I would add my own interpretation, which is as above, so below, which is to say part of our lives is accepting that we ourselves die. We all know that. Everybody knows that we as individuals will die. We all know that we as individuals die, that everybody we know will die. Virtually everything on this planet that is living will die. Whether we are okay with that or not, you know, some people aren't, some people can't quite cope with that reality. That's just one level. The other level is that, okay, we know that planets die. There are dead stars out there. We look at Mars and we're like, we think Mars had life. We think these other planets may have had lush life of some kind. That indicates that they may have died, or at least life on that planet may have died or declined to such a significant degree that we can't see it anymore. So, you know, in in a more secular scientific view, we seem to understand that planets can die too. And it makes sense. If we can die, it makes sense that planets can die. They're a different sort of organism. Maybe planets are just a host to other organisms, but it seems that planets can become inhospitable. And so, yeah, you can accept the fact that you die. You can find a certain peace with that, a certain acceptance maybe. But the next step is, oh, but you're going to die too, which people have a harder time with. Because there's people I know who have accepted the fact that they are going to die. I don't know what they really think about it deep down. But I know some people who I've had conversations with about death and things like that, and they seem to have a basic acceptance of the fact that they will die someday. But they'll turn around and shriek about climate change, which I get. You know, I get the idea that we shouldn't destroy the planet any more than we have to. And I agree with that. 
But I also have this suspicion that it's going to die anyway. Maybe not as quickly, but I do have this suspicion that I'm like, eh, you know, uh, I think no matter what we do, the planet might eventually give up all life. And that seems to be too much for many people to bear. Because what does it actually matter when it happens? And that's not me advocating that we should, might as well just keep doing what we're doing. Might as well keep fracking. Might as well keep fracking. The planet's going to die. Because that's almost the same thing as might as well keep shooting up heroin. I'm going to die anyway. Because that's not the idea. Might as well keep drinking. I'm going to die anyway. Well, I don't think that's the right approach. I've learned that that's not the, the right approach. You should treat yourself well. Because I can tell you, like, when I was drinking myself, you know, under the table. That's not even the right phrase I'm looking for, but oh well. But when I was drinking too much, let's just say that. Uh, I was actually less okay with dying. Even though getting blackout drunk all the time, you know, made me think like, eh, you know, like, I'm okay with whatever happens. I know what I'm doing. I'm taking responsibility for my actions, which I believed I was doing. Now I would question that. Now I would say, I don't know that I was taking responsibility for my actions. I think I was actually abdicating responsibility. I think that I was actually not taking responsibility for my consciousness by doing that, especially getting blacked out. That's definitely not taking responsibility for your own consciousness. At the time, though, I kind of justified it to myself that way by thinking like, oh, well, like I wasn't trying to kill myself or anything with alcohol, but I, I did kind of have this thought where I'm like, well, I'm going to die anyway. And, and by saying that, I'm taking responsibility for my actions. Like I know what I'm doing, but knowing what you're doing doesn't mean taking responsibility for yourself. It's easy to confuse those, but it's not necessarily the case. Not really ever the case in my opinion, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I can't remember what I was getting at, but uh, here's what I was getting at, which is that, you know, you can take responsibility for your own life, even though you know, you're going to die, but taking responsibility for your own life doesn't mean expediting your own death. It doesn't mean killing yourself. It doesn't mean destroying yourself because chances are you're not okay with dying. If you're going to do that, even if you're consciously trying to kill yourself, you're still not okay with dying. If you're doing that, in my opinion. A lot of my opinions here. Turns out this is all just one big opinion. It's all, all of my smaller opinions form my larger opinion, which is one thing. But, you know, you can apply that to the earth as well, where taking responsibility for living on the earth means not expediting the death of the earth. So I agree with climate change activists in that way where we should treat the earth well. I think there is a way, I don't know that you can achieve absolute balance because to live is to destroy, it's to eat. It doesn't matter if you don't eat meat, you got to consume something. And we have sort of a hierarchy around that. You know, we have this sort of hierarchy around like, it's, it's more okay to destroy this than it is that. And that's one of the ways we try to seek balance. That's what we're doing when we do that. Like when someone's like, well, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm only going to eat plant matter. 
They're trying to find some sort of balance. They're trying to destroy less. Most people with a certain level of sophistication know that in being a vegetarian, you're still destroying something. You're still destroying living things. But you're operating under this hierarchy, and I'm not a vegetarian, and I have no desire to be one. I don't feel it's necessary. Some people feel otherwise, and I respect that. You'll never hear me make fun of vegetarians. I always think that's kind of a cheap form of humor. I mean, make fun of everybody if you can find a good joke. But uh, I'm not against the idea of being a vegetarian. And I respect that they're just trying to find a balance if that's their motivation, if they're not obnoxious, that kind of thing. But there are obnoxious meat eaters, too. There are people who try to push hard the other way, and I see them the same way. But the idea is basically don't destroy the earth more than you have to. You do have to, like my favorite Black Sabbath lyric says, you know, destruction of the empty spaces is my one and only crime. And that's what we do as living beings. Our life itself, the fact that we exist, destroyed an empty space. There was an empty space where we individually did not exist. And it, by coming into being, we destroyed an empty space. And by continuing to live, we continue to destroy more empty spaces. I've talked about this in a creative sense, where I sometimes have this guilt, like the Sabbath lyric says, this feeling that I've committed a crime when I do anything, when I say anything. And it's not a self-hating thing. I don't torture myself with it. I just have this feeling deep down, maybe, it's, maybe I'm recognizing how sacred nothing is, how sacred emptiness is. And simply, I'm acknowledging, I don't like the way I'm talking right now, but this is the best way to describe it. Maybe I'm acknowledging in some way that my life involves destroying things. And if I want to keep living, I will destroy things. But I should do it when it's meaningful. I should do it with purpose. Like, I don't make art just to make art. When I do it, you know, I do it because I feel like it's the right thing for me to do. And you can justify anything that way. But it's not a bad guideline to have. Like, is this the right thing for me to do? It's why, you know, our bodies tell us not to eat too much food. Because we'll feel like shit and we'll get fat. <laughs> you know? Everybody knows about that one. But your body's telling you, like, don't destroy more than you have to. Because everything that you're consuming, whether it was a mammal, whether it was a plant, whether it was processed in some factory, everything you are consuming to sustain yourself came from something that had to be destroyed so that you could be sustained. And so in some way, when you overeat and you feel sick and you get fat and you feel like shit the next day, your body's telling you in a way, oh, you destroyed more than you had to. And you know what? It is a crime. Not punishable by death. Well, I guess it, it all kind of is, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but no, it's not that you need to be directly punished for it, but destruction of the empty spaces is my one and only crime. The Black Sabbath lyric that keeps on giving, keeps on destroying too. 
So the idea of like living on planet Earth is that I'm going to be destroying this planet in some small way in my own little place here. In my own little corner of the world, I destroy. I'm in a house right now. I'm in a house made of wood. Things were destroyed to build this house. I'm sure if I actually went down and looked at the way everything here has been built, like all the objects in my house and everything, something had to be used. Most things here are the result of something being destroyed. Something was constructed, but a living thing, like just looking at all the wood around me, like it's a pretty insane thought. Like I feel like a teenager on psychedelics, but looking around my house, I'm like the cupboards are wood. You know, the the counter not the, the counters are rock. I guess that wasn't living. But underneath the counters, you know, the drawers are all wood. All the cabinets are wood, the floors are wood. I know there's wood behind the plaster walls, so to think that that was all living at one point, you know, something, a lot of something had to be destroyed for me to be here in this house, which I need to live comfortably. So, you know, sustaining yourself involves a certain amount of destruction. And the idea is to not destroy more than you need. Because you will feel it, even just psychically. It's like taking more than you need. You know, even if it's not something you're consuming, like even if it's not too much food that will make you fat and feel gross, it's like psychologically, you know, when you've taken too much of something. It's why a couple of weeks ago when I was complaining about the guy at grocery outlet taking all the protein bars, they had this sale on protein bars. They were all selling them individually for 50 cents a pop, 50 cents a pop. And I watched this guy just scoop them all. He took every last one. But you know what? He looked like he was protecting something. He looked defensive. Even though I was way behind him, I didn't confront him. I didn't stand behind him. In theory, he had no idea that I was going down that aisle to get protein bars. And he took them all because there was a sale. Best deal on protein bars in town. And I actually went to the store that day just to get those bars. I wasn't going to take them all, but I was going to take what I needed. And I watched him just, he was like, he had his arm curved, like he curved his arm he was using his entire arm to reach into the bin and just scoop them into his basket. It was the only thing he bought. The only thing he bought was those protein bars. And his body language was very defensive. Nobody else, I was the only one in that aisle aside from him. And I was pretending to look at other things because I don't believe in pressuring people in the grocery store. But I watched him do it and he knew he was doing something wrong. No, he wasn't committing an actual crime. He wasn't breaking the law. But he knew that he shouldn't take every last one of those protein bars. He took like 50 of them. There was like a bin of like 50 protein bars. And he, he scooped every last one of them into his, his uh, hand cart, whatever you call it, his hand basket. But his body language communicated that he knew he was doing something wrong. And so psychologically, he knew he was taking more than he needed. And we all kind of know that when we do that. And we kind of take on a defensive posture when we're doing it. Like when Batman gets greedy. 
he kind of takes on a defensive posture. Like when Batman is trying to protect a tree, he kind of arches his body, kind of curves his body in this very protective way. Like, no, I want this. And he's not taking more than he needs or anything, you know, but still there is this sort of defensive posture. Like when we know we are being greedy, when we know we are, in, we are indulging maybe more than we should, there's kind of a defensiveness to that sometimes. But you can still accept that the planet will die. <laughs> How's that for a, a return to the topic? You can still accept that the planet will die. You can, though. You know, in the same way that you can still try to sustain your own life and destroy as few things as possible to sustain yourself and take care of yourself, live a healthy life, because that is how you find some kind of acceptance. You know, try to, if you try to live a mentally, physically, and spiritually healthy life, I believe you end up feeling more okay about death than you would otherwise. And I think it's the same thing for the death of the planet. Like, if you live a life that destroys less of the planet than maybe you could, in a strange way, I think you might be more okay with the planet eventually dying because you've done what you could while accepting that it's in an, in an inevitable process either way. And then, of course, you once you accept that, okay, I've accepted that I'm going to die. I've accepted that the planet's going to die. I guess I got it all figured out. Well, now you have to accept that maybe the galaxy's going to die. The sun's going to die. We hear about that. People, <laughs> I always love when there are scientific articles and stuff They're like, we think that this is a burned out sun. <gasps> we think that the sun might be dying. <gasps> it's like you can't even figure your own life out and you're worried about the death of the sun. But that's the next step. It's like you can accept that planets die and then it's like, well, maybe the sun's going to die. Maybe the solar system's going to die. Maybe everything, maybe the entire universe but that's beyond our comprehension. You know, it's beyond our comprehension. All you can do is actually just govern your own life because it's governing your own individual life that impacts the planet. And so trying to think beyond that about, I mean, just wait. First, we're going to save the planet. Next, we're going to save the galaxy. Oh, we think the sun is dying. So we're going to scold you because it turns out that your carbon emissions are killing the sun. We've saved planet Earth. Now it's time to save the sun. It's not that far off. I could see us doing that. And we're going to guilt you. We're going to make life miserable up to that point. We're going to make you hate your fellow man. Because your, your neighbor, see your neighbor? Because he uses so much plastic, he's going to kill the sun someday. But going back to the idea of a simulation, you can see where we also have this feeling deep down that it's all fake, which you could see as a form of nihilism. Oh, it's all fake, so I'm just going to not care. Oh, if it's all fake, I can just go out and kick a baby in the face. It's all fake, so I'm just going to kill myself. I'm just going to indulge. I'm just going to eat till I drop. 
I'm going to go see prostitutes. I'm going to get every disease known to man because none of it matters. And it's funny, though, like when you accept that on a spiritual level, at least when you recognize the illusory nature of reality, it doesn't make me feel more nihilistic. It actually gives me a greater sense of purpose. It actually makes me feel more okay with everything. It makes me want to destroy less. It's like I said many years ago and now, I think I said it on one of the YouTube shows, the school night TV shows. I think I was talking about the idea of positive nihilism, which is, it's funny to me that when people take a nihilistic approach, it's inevitably destructive. It's like, oh, because nothing matters and everything's absurd, I'm just going to destroy myself and be a nasty human being and make other people's lives miserable too. It's funny that people go there with it because there's no actual reason to go there with it. If nothing matters and everything's absurd, isn't it more absurd to actually take care of yourself? Isn't it more absurd to go to the gym and eat healthy and sustain your absurd life? Isn't that a fun project? Isn't that a fun idea? Positive nihilism? Oh, nothing matters. So I'm going to do these things to improve the game. If this is just a game... I'm going to do things to improve the game. And what's funny is you can actually experience that in a video game. Like if you've played a video game, like an open world video game. Well, I experienced this as a kid and I found a picture last night. I was going through old pictures and I found a picture of myself from when I was a little kid playing Final Fantasy 2, a.k.a. 5. What was then known as Final Fantasy 2 in the United States was actually Final Fantasy 5 in Japan. Doesn't that just highlight the illusory nature of everything? The fact that I grew up thinking this video game was Final Fantasy 2, because that's what it was called. And it turns out it was actually Final Fantasy 5 the entire time in Japan, but I had no idea. Sounds like an illusion to me. I didn't know better, though. But I found a picture of myself as a little kid, and you could see the TV screen in the background. I was playing Final Fantasy 2. I feel very happy with that. I, feel, I was very happy to see that. I feel like it gave me some credibility. Like I talk so much about JRPGs sometimes, which is a new term. We knew them simply as RPGs. But now people make a distinction between WRPG and, and JRPG. Western RPG and Japanese RPG. I don't like Western RPGs. They're dark and medieval. I like JRPGs. They're a little brighter and more fun, even when they're dark. But, uh, you know, this is something I learned playing Final Fantasy 2, which was the first RPG I ever played, which was I rented it from Blockbuster. And when you rented an RPG from Blockbuster, it would have other people's saved games on it. So there would be other people's saved games who had beaten the game. And you would rent it and you'd be able to play as them. And they had already beaten the game. So you could just take the airship and fly around the world and talk to people. You could go fight random battles anywhere. Your characters were leveled up. And that was really exciting to me at the time because what was so attractive to me about RPGs is the exploration. It's the talking to villagers. It's just getting to see this little world that's been created that captivates your imagination. But after renting it a couple times, I was like, you know, this sucks. Not that it sucked, but it was just like, I'm not getting anything out of this. So I finally decided I'm actually going to have to play through the game myself. 
and start out at a low level and play through all the stories and fight all the bad guys because that's the actual game. It's not just wandering around freely and doing whatever you want. And I think this is probably describes like Grand Theft Auto or something just as well. Where that was one of the last video games I played for a console. Whatever that one was that was a big deal. The new Grand Theft Auto that came out probably 20 years ago. Where you just wander around the city and you can do whatever. You can pick up girls, prostitutes, you can kill people. It's what they call, I think they call that a sandbox game. Oh, you're talking about the sandbox game. But it's this open world where you can do whatever you want. But there is a story to play. And you can only wander around doing random things for so long before the novelty of that wears off. Like playing Grand Theft Auto, I think it was like GTA 3 maybe. I don't remember which one it was. I think GTA 3. But the idea was it's like this isn't actually that much fun to just do this forever. It's not that much fun to just wander around killing people and getting in car chases and picking up prostitutes. That's not as much fun. What's actually fun is to do the quests, to do the story. And uh, that's kind of like ni- you know nihilism in a nutshell. Like you're playing a video game and you're like, this doesn't actually matter. It's just a game. It's just entertainment. It's a way to pass the time. I'm just playing it. Might as well just do all the fun stuff. Might as well just do all the bad stuff. But you reach a point where you're like, this is freaking boring. And it's actually depressing just to sit here doing whatever I want all the time. And so you play through the story. And that's like positive nihilism. It's like, I'm going to play through the story because I actually get something out of it. You know, I'm actually going to play through the storyline. Because you feel like you have more purpose when you do that. It's more satisfying. And you still recognize that it doesn't actually matter whether you beat Grand Theft Auto. And I never did. I never beat Grand Theft Auto, for the record. I did beat Final Fantasy II, though. But it's that same sort of realization where it's like, I can actually play through the story, and that's what you're meant to do. And when you do that, you get more out of it. And so that's sort of positive nihilism. And I'm not a nihilist. I'm not, a, I'm not even a positive nihilist. But that's sort of my argument against negative nihilism, which is that, okay, you're getting... And, and, and there's, there's sort of a... Uh, I mean, nihilism is, is kind of a... What do you call it? A, not a hypocrisy. It's kind of a paradox. Nihilism is a paradox because every single person I've ever known, and I've known quite a few who've embraced nihilism, they end up getting a lot of meaning from their negative nihilism. And many times they seem more convinced that reality is a certain way than the positive people I know. People I know who get very depressed and negative and nihilistic and embrace these nihilistic themes, they seem even more resolute that reality is the exact way they think it is than other people. They seem to have a sense of meaning. It's a miserable sense of meaning. But they seem even more dogmatic in some ways. They don't actually seem nihilistic. They just seem like they're looking for an excuse to be nasty and negative. To sabotage themselves. And they seem to get meaning from that. From that. So it's funny. It's sort of this paradox of nihilism where even if you embrace the most destructive aspects of nihilism, it still becomes a system of meaning. 
just like secular atheism ends up becoming kind of an ideology unto itself, and it mirrors the religions that it's trying to distance itself from. Oh, you know, the world's going to end. We measured it with science. Oh, that flood? That's a sign that the world's going to end. Oh, no, no, but we're, we're correct. I know that you think the flood is a sign that the world's going to end, Christian. I also think that the flood is a sign that the world's going to end. But based on my own understanding of the world. So it's just funny in that way. But then also in the sense that we're living in a simulation. Oh, you know, I spent my entire life looking at a computer and playing video games. And so that's given me a certain framework for understanding the world around me. And deep down, I have some feeling that this is all fleeting. I have this feeling that life is fleeting. I know I'm going to die. It seems like a lot of the ideas in my head can change just on a dime. If I let them. It seems like this surreal reality we're living in might be kind of fake. Oh, I guess it's a computer simulation. It's funny how people go there. And that just, that to me shows this level of contemporary narcissism. I don't expect everybody to understand it in the same way. I don't expect everybody to go through scripture. I don't expect everybody to get theological about it. But what's so funny about me about that is the audacity of it and the arrogance and the contemporary narcissism where it's like, oh, no, no, no. I know you figured this out using your own terms, the Maya. But it's really just a simulation. It's a, we're living in a computer inside a computer. And the thing is, I know a lot of people who say that. They're not, like, dogmatic about it. They're not dead serious, but they seem to keep coming back to it. And they seem afraid to just acknowledge that there could be some sort of spiritual component to it. Not that you have to understand it that way. But it's like, oh, no, it's a computer inside a computer. It's like, can't you just say God once? Who created... If Let's say we're living in a simulation. Who created the simulation? And if it's a simulation, that means that it is based on something else. If this is a simulation, it is a microcosmic reflection of something else that's going on that roughly looks like this. God created man in his image. I'm not saying that's 100% right. But can you not see that there's a connection there? Can you not see that that's the same idea? And of course, you know, a, a born-again Christian might be like, how dare you compare the creation of man to a simulation? And I would, say, I would say the same thing back to them. Can't you see the connection there? So it's not that I think the simulation is a bad idea. It's just funny to me that people come upon that like it's a fresh idea. And they seem so, if they come at it from a sort of a secular point of view, they seem terrified about admitting that, hey, maybe there's something to all of that, you know, spiritual stuff that I've rejected. You know, maybe there's something to that. It's sort of similar to when I've talked about meditation. Oh, here we go. Oh, you had to bring up meditation. No, but what, what I've said about meditation before is it's not a secular practice for me. 
It's not always some deep spiritual experience. Sometimes I'm just passing the time. Sometimes I'm just sitting there counting down until I'm done. It's not like every single time I meditate, I achieve Satori or something, but sometimes something happens. Sometimes something does happen. And it was funny, actually, yesterday I was just browsing the internet, browsing the simulation. You can see where the internet's a simulation. You know, it's like we pick avatars. It's like, oh, yeah, but it's just a photo. It's like, what do you think a photo is? A photo is a simulation. It might be static, but guess what? We turned photos into moving images. What do you think a movie is? It's a simulation. We're telling a story, but it's a simulation of reality. But uh, you can see where the internet is itself a simulation. It's not fundamentally different from the world we live in. Yeah, it's words on a screen and pictures and, and videos. And it gets more and more interactive. Look what we've done with video games. Where it's like they used to look nothing like the world around us. They used to be abstract blobs. And what do we do? What is everybody decided to do as a whole what has every video game developer decided to do together to make it look more realistic why is that even when it's fantastic like even when a video game is like oh how dare you compare it to reality it's a guy with wings it's a human being with wings and green hair and elf ears and he's riding a, a pink zebra and that gun that he has isn't, there's no real gun like that. And that brings to mind like Alan Watts' idea of asking somebody to create, if somebody rejects the universe, asking them to create their own and how they will inevitably recreate the same universe we have. And you could say, well, look, but he, it, he basically rearranges the furniture where it's like, yeah, but he, look, like he created a new universe where human beings have elf ears and wings. Yeah, but elf ears and wings are a part of this universe, too. He didn't create anything out of thin air. He created a new universe, but it's not new at all. He just rearranged it. It's like asking somebody to create new music. Nine times out of ten, all they do is hybridize existing music. Oh, my God, this guy. And it's novelty. All of that is novelty. It's still our same reality. It's still a simulation of our reality. But you just made hybrids out of things that, you know, you don't... And, but you see where, like, we could reach a point where we give humans wings. Look at what we're doing now with surgeries and plastic surgery and changing people's genders and all of this stuff. It's like, we're getting there. But... Uh, it's always funny to me, like that Alan Watts one, where it's like, if you ask somebody to recreate the universe the way they want it, they're just going to rearrange it. And it's funny to see that creatively with music, where, like, when I was first getting into metal and everything, I was a little more taken by novelty. Like, when I was getting into death metal, like, every once in a while, a band would pop up who was, like, supposed to be kind of experimental. Oh, they, this band's doing something totally different. Oh, they're death metal, but they're influenced by free jazz. And it's novelty. It's like a liger or whatever the joke is. It doesn't go anywhere. Like when you create a novelty creature in real life, like when you breed two animals, 
of a different species and you create some hybrid, isn't it a, a jackass or something? Isn't it a, uh, a mule? A mule is what a half horse, half donkey. Am I getting that right? I think a mule is half horse, half donkey, and it can't breed further. It's the end of its genetic line. It can't even breed with another mule. I might be confusing that with something else, but I'm pretty sure I have that, that it's a novelty. Not to say it's useless, not to say that mules should never exist or anything. I'm not cruel. But when you create a novelty creature, it can't breed any further. When you create novelty music, oh, we're going to take free jazz and death metal. It won't go any further. It's pure novelty. When you rearrange the universe, you might create something novel. But chances are you can't really go anywhere else with it. And all you're doing is mixing and matching what's already there in reality to begin with. So, I mean, it takes a certain point of view to recognize that. But once you recognize that at best you're just going to create novelty, you go, okay, well, that, that's still our reality. And our reality does allow novelty. And technology and science allows us to create even more novelty. I mean, isn't the coronavirus called a novel virus? Isn't, isn't the coronavirus a novelty? I think it is. And so, you know, I can understand why people say like we're living in a simulation, but it's just, it's funny to me that that's thought of as this new epiphany. But hey, you know, you got to access these ideas where you can find them. But I guess it's funny that people would reject all of these similar epiphanies that have played out throughout time and actually inform these long-standing traditions and religions and belief systems. Did you know life is temporary? We're just bubbles floating on a stream on the surface of the Dharma? Oh, did you know that our reality is actually a false reality? It's just a bunch of illusions created by the gods, and it's called the Maya. Maybe to somebody back then, they heard, maybe, maybe somebody heard Hindus say that or Buddhists say that way back when, and were like, you think it's the Maya? You think it's just an illusion of the Dharma? Maybe that sounded as silly back then as someone today saying, it's a simulation. Probably. But the point I'm getting at is that people have been saying that for a long time. They've been discussing that. And I think one of the reasons I'm so hard on secular atheists is there's this tendency to think like, well, see, what we're thinking is totally new. See, we have these new systems that help us better understand the reality around us because we dissect everything and change everything and measure everything. We have a brand new, correct view of the world. You believe in Sky Daddy? And then they'll turn around and be like, I think we're living in a simulation. Oh, I think synchronicity is a matter of statistic probability. That's a funny one, too. Synchronicity happens, and synchronicity is felt. Synchronicity isn't just some coincidence that your intellect recognizes. When, synchroni when synchronicity actually occurs, you feel it. It feels important. It's not that it is important. It's not that the synchronicity itself 
the instance of synchronicity you've experienced, it's not that there is any greater meaning to the data, but that connectivity is what it is emphasizing, at least the way I see it. When you experience synchronicity, it's a reminder of Indra's net. It's this greater connectivity that everything is connected in this interwoven net and in that net are an endless number of jewels that reflect each other. That's synchronicity to me. Everything is reflected in everything else, and everything is interwoven as part of this net. So, of course, you're going to experience certain coincidences, and certain coincidences are going to appear meaningful. Not because you should take some schizophrenic approach where you're like, this happened and this happened, and it came up 10 times in one day. That means that I should sell all my clothes and, and go live naked in the woods. And that I'm Jesus Christ. Not that you should go there with it, but it, it's a reminder of the connectivity because we often feel so disconnected. And that's the reason why these are all such big epiphanies to us. They shouldn't be, but they are. Because we go through life feeling so disconnected that when we're reminded that things connect in strange ways, we go, whoa, that's weird. But some people are so religious. They're so dogmatic in their own way, in their own secular way, in an anti-spiritual way, I would say. That when they hear you go, whoa, isn't it weird that this and this happened? They go, no, it's not weird. It's a matter of probability. It's a matter of mathematical probability that this would come up every now and again. Two things come up in the same day. And you're like, whoa, I was just having fun. And there's a reason why Buddhism teaches you not to be attached to synchronicity. You don't want to treasure synchronicity for its own sake. But I feel what's sometimes missing from that is you can also just enjoy it. You don't have to go, oh my God, I got to tell everybody I know. Because I used to do that. When I would experience synchronicity when I was younger, I would call a certain friend. And I'd be like, dude, you wouldn't believe what just happened today. I was talking about koi fish. And then I was playing a board game. And one of the cards was a koi fish. And then I went home and I was watching... Who wants to be a millionaire? And the answer to a question was koi fish. And then I was talking to my friend the next day, and he said he's, he's getting a pond. He's building a pond in his backyard, and he's thinking about stocking it with koi fish. You know, it's like you want to tell people that when you experience it, because it's kind of exciting. It doesn't mean that the koi fish itself is of any special significance, but it's some kind of signpost. If nothing else, this is, this is my own belief here. But if nothing else, those sorts of experiences, synchronicity. One, it often means that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And people get that confused with good, positive things. You might be going through something difficult or dark. I've experienced dark synchronicity. I've, I've experienced tons of synchronicity when I'm actually going through a real struggle. When I'm doing something that's not fun at all. It's actually a very difficult real life situation. But it's often a sign to me that you're doing what you need to do. And I don't experience them that often anymore. 
funny enough, it kind of came around the time that I had this epiphany that if nothing else, it's communicating the greater connectivity. Around the time that I realized that, they don't happen that often. And also when they do happen, I don't jot them down. Like I, I went on a trip to Canada with my friend Nick, and I know, I know I've talked about it here. His family has a cabin up in the mountains of Canada. And we took a trip there. We drove from Seattle up to the snowy mountains of Canada. And that trip, it was probably just a few days, but I had a list of like 20 synchronicities. And at that point in time, I still referred to them plural as if each individual instance of synchronicity was its own event. Like I used to think, oh, that was asynchronicity. Look at this big list of different synchronicities. Now I would look at that list and say, this is all a communication of the same thing. And the example I would use is if you're driving on the road and you can see the mountain, you know, here we have Mount Rainier, you can see it from all over town and you're driving along and you see the mountain and then all of a sudden you drive through a patch of woods and the mountain is covered up by trees. You exit the woods and then you see the mountain again. It's not that that's a different mountain. It's the same mountain you saw before, but it was covered by the trees. Some trees were in your way. A building could have been in your way. You might not see it the entire time. And with synchronicity, you don't see them most of the time. You don't see it most of the time. But it's a lot like that mountain where it's there and it's the same thing. Not that it's a material object, but still it's one thing is how I view it. And it's not necessarily a happy thing. It's not necessarily a good thing, but I would say it's often necessary. And what I've learned is you acknowledge it. And over time, I used to be so excited because when I met my friend Miles, I was, I think I was 19 years old when he moved here and we were overwhelmed. Like there was a two year period, I would say where he and I were simply overwhelmed, like between 2005 and 2007, we were just overwhelmed with synchronicity. We were constantly calling each other. You know, people didn't text messages much at, at that time. We were constantly calling each other and saying, this came up, that thing we just talked about just came up. That person that we talked about, and there was also very prophetic. But when you say something is prophetic, they think that it's big. They think it's like Nostradamus level prophecy. There's such a thing as humble prophecy where you just go like, oh, hey, wouldn't it be funny if that guy signed to this record label that he has no connection to and that has never released his style of music? And then a week later, dude, did you hear who's going to release that guy's record? You would know, be things like that. And th there were real examples like that one. It, it was just weird stuff that kept happening. And it was synchronicity, it was prophecy, but it was all very humble too, even though we were lit up by it, even though we were electrified by it. And it helps to have another person because sometimes you experience them on your own, which is why you want to call somebody and be like, you wouldn't believe what just happened to me. But that's about as interesting as telling somebody about your dream without getting their consent. It's like, let me tell you all about the dream I just had. And dreams, isn't that a good example of, isn't a dream a simulation? It's like, oh, my dream was so insane. Like, how often do dreams happen to you where there's truly a new reality taking place? Going back to Alan Watts rearranging the universe, 
Most of the time, your dreams are just rearranging the universe. Oh, this friend of mine was in my dream, but you wouldn't believe it. They had a different person's face. It's like, yeah, that's amazing. I'm not discounting that dreams can be interesting and cool. Of course they are. But it's just a rearrangement. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. I had a car, just like I do in real life, but it was a 1957 Chevy, and it was navy blue. It's like, yeah, in real life, you don't own a 57 navy blue Chevrolet. But still, that was, that's a real thing that you can drive. It's a car. It's just, it's just rearranging the furniture. In the dream, you happen to have that. In that simulation, you happen to have that. I don't believe dreams are actually a simulation. I don't see the world through the lens of simulation at all. But it's a placeholder word. And so we experience these simulations of a kind ourselves when we go to sleep. And we spend our lives... I don't think about dreams very much. I don't read into dreams... A few years ago, just as an exercise, I tried keeping a dream journal, and it was interesting. It did change my experience. I was much more aware of what was taking place in my dreams. I had much greater memory of what took place. It definitely changed how I experienced sleeping and dreaming to keep a dream journal, as silly as it sounds. And I had a dream catcher. I did not have a dream catcher. But I stopped doing it. You know, I don't really try to think too much about dreams, which kind of, you know, that's an area of Jung that I, I think is interesting. I think it's good that Carl Jung got into that. Who would I be to question what he did? But it's an area of his work that I don't really think about as much. Even though he's kind of the godfather of synchronicity, but when Carl Jung came up with the term synchronicity, it's not that he invented a new idea. He was describing something that people have experienced forever. And a lot of people's religious and spiritual experiences are that. And that's just, that just shows you the difference here, the difference in language, which then informs our understanding, which to one person, they experience something strange or they see that the world feels fake and surreal and fleeting. And they say, oh, it's the Maya. It's the Hindu Maya. A Buddhist says, oh, it's the Dharma casting its illusions. A secular atheist says, oh, it's a computer simulation within a simulation. They're having the same experience, but their interpretation is different. Same thing for synchronicity. Like, I remember hearing from a Christian at one point when I was younger, because I've been preoccupied. I, I was, I wouldn't say I'm preoccupied with synchronicity now. I would say when they happen, they just kind of come and go. And I, I kind of smile, and that's about it. I don't feel the need to tell anybody about them. And they happen far fewer, far less often than they used to. Like I said, since I kind of came to that understanding that they are a communication of that greater connectivity, whether that's what they are or not, that's, what I, that's the sensation I got. And since then, I don't really think about them as much nor experience them, and I'm okay with that. Because I used to be hungry for them. They were like a jewel to me. Like I was on this endless search for jewels. And when you experience a synchronicity, it feels like a jewel. It's like, wow, this fell into my hands. Isn't that crazy? But uh, you can see where someone's experience with something like synchronicity has different words, has different interpretations too, but it's still the same experience. Carl Jung described it as synchronicity. And I, I have a... 
I have a love for Carl Jung because he managed to bridge a gap between the spiritual and the psychological in a way that few have. And I think that's important since we understand so much of the world today through the lens of psychology, which let me tell you, we won't always do that. We will look back at contemporary psychology, probably much like we look back at people like who have demons inside of them. People will be like, oh, can you believe it? They used to diagnose people with these disorders. Is a disorder really different than saying someone's possessed by a demon? Maybe the way we approach it is different. Maybe it seems different, but it's not fundamentally different. Another example of how we use these placeholders and we have this temporary understanding of things that we think is it. Oh, it's, it's called bipolar disorder. Oh, it's, it's the bipolar demon. But uh, anyway, like Carl Jung referred to it as synchronicity. And I like his approach to it because he, he tried to kind of quantify it. He tried to get scientific about it. But he was a spiritual man. And so it wasn't just clinical. A lot of, his, a lot of the best... A lot, a lot of the best information from Carl Jung about synchronicity was experiential, as it can only be, honestly. You really can't measure it scientifically, in my opinion. But I've, I remember talking, to get back to what I was saying, I, was, I remember talking to a Christian many years ago, because I was preoccupied with synchronicity for so long, and I realized in talking to them that this person experienced synchronicity too, but to them it was God. To them, it was channeled through their beliefs. And when they experienced synchronicity, it was like God winking at them. And you know what? That's kind of what I feel now, too. When I experience synchronicity today, it might not be a Christian experience because I'm not a Christian. But it feels like God just giving me a little wink. And so the fact that a Christian can have that same experience and it's channeled through this Christian lens, it's not wrong. They just feel like God's giving them a little sign. And Buddhism is much more, um, I mean, it probably depends on the branch. I, I always talk about Buddhism very generally because I can't pronounce anything. And it's all just like a, a swirling mass of words that I can't spell nor pronounce. But just Buddhism in general, I've noticed, takes a very hard line approach to synchronicity where it's, it's kind of part of, they, they see it almost as entertainment and hammer home, don't get attached to it. Don't read into it. Just let it come and go. And I think that is the right approach, but I think it's okay to have fun with synchronicity as long as you know what you're doing. As long as you are grounded. Because you can see where someone who does have what, today we call a psychological disorder can experience synchronicity and think they're the second coming of Christ. And I wouldn't tell them they're not because I don't know. But you can see where it can feed into someone's delusions. And even me talking about this in this way, someone might be like, oh, he's off his rocker. He sounds schizophrenic. Well, I can tell you I'm not. I'm grounded enough to where I can experience this without it removing me from who I am 
and what I'm doing on a practical level even. But I can have fun with them. I can go, whoa, that's cool. And it's always interesting to me when people respond angrily or defensively. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I'm so critical of secular atheism. There's this tendency to respond angrily to these things. Whoa, dude, isn't it cool that we, you know, that we watched this movie and that song played in the credits? And then we got in the car and, and turned on the radio to a random station and it was playing the same song in the credits? Or it was, it was playing that same song? It's a popular song. It's a matter of statistical probability that we would hear that song in a row at some point. Yeah, but we were just talking after the movie about how much we liked that song and how cool it was that they chose to end the movie that way. Now, you can't argue with someone like that. You can't try to press your point because I've experienced that time and time again. And that just told me that I'm not meant to share those. I shared the experience with them, but it told me I'm not meant to discuss the experience with them. I had that happen with a good friend of mine who normally, what's interesting is it's not just one type of person. The same person, depending on their mood, depending on where they're at, can respond completely differently. They can be a real Jekyll and Hyde. They can be what we call a real Jekyll and Hyde when it comes to experiencing things, these things together. Because when you experience some of these things with another person, like I talked about my friend Miles, where when I was 19 years old, and those two years, or however long it was, where we were experiencing these sorts of things, not limited to synchronicity, but what might be described as almost otherworldly cosmic experiences, like cosmic coincidences, epiphanies, prophecies, all of them humble, all of them pertaining to our little corner of the world. Not big guesses about the nature of the universe, although I think you understand it that way through experiencing these things in your own little corner of the world. So I wouldn't deny that, but still, these were humble experiences. But the fact that we experienced these things in tandem, we were able to confirm them for each other. It wasn't one person just spiraling away by themselves because that can happen. People can lose their minds that way. It was I was experiencing them with a good friend of mine. And so we were able to confirm that this wasn't a delusion. This was, this was happening to us in our lives. And that's happened to me again and again. Where It's sometimes a relationship to somebody, which is connectivity too. But it's sometimes through a relationship with somebody that you experience these things. You meet a new friend. That's kind of what it was. My friend Miles moved to town. We made music. We discussed ideas in depth. I was meant to be friends with this guy. As a result, things happened. Sometimes it happens if you meet a new girl. I've had it happen with, I start dating a new girl, and it might not be a good situation. It might be bad. It might not be love. But you meet a new girl and synchronicity starts happening and you're both observing it and you're both aware of it. And that can be very exciting in a new romantic relationship. And girls love it. Girls love it. But the thing is, somebody can quickly turn on a dime. I was experiencing that with a, a girl. We weren't dating, but you know we were kind of testing the waters. 
and we were experiencing just synchronicity after synchronicity, but she got really defensive and weird about it. And I don't think that I was trying to force it on her. I don't think I was trying to say, look, look, you see what's happening? Oh my God, you see the, the sparkling stars in the sky? You know, I, I wasn't being obnoxious about it, but I just, even if I would say something as simple as, whoa, that came up again. She'd go, yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. She'd have some excuse or explanation for it. And what's interesting is I think she's a spiritual person. You know, I think she's somebody who has her own spiritual understanding, but it was just the wrong time. But yet it was the right time because this was happening. It was the right time for this particular experience. It wasn't the right time for anything else surrounding that, but it was the right time for this particular experience. But it was so, it was kind of frustrating at the time because it wasn't like I, I mean, she was a friend. You know, I wasn't trying to make anything happen, but it was just, there was some kind of dissonance to everything. And it, it was just strange though, because it was like she, she was very, very guarded about the experience. I don't know why. I have no idea why. And it's none of my business. But she, she was very guarded about it. Like she didn't want to acknowledge, like she did acknowledge that it was happening. But it was like, I don't know, sometimes when that happens, I get a feeling that it's fear. And I don't want to say that. I don't want to assume that. But it, it almost feels like the person is scared because it can be kind of scary because it defies your normal everyday experience to have things like that happen. And what I was about to say a minute ago is it happened to me when I visited a friend in another state. I went and stayed with this friend and normally he's very receptive to this kind of thing. I've known him a long time and we've always gotten a big thrill out of going on adventures because whenever he and I go on adventures, we experience synchronicity, we experience epiphanies. It's an almost psychic experience. But for whatever reason, this one trip, everything was just off. It was necessary, but it was still off. Like I didn't take it as a sign that I shouldn't be there. But I took it as a sign that, that for some reason this is necessary to have this sort of dissonant, weird, I don't know, just sort of a bad time. And that had never been true. We, we always have a great time, so that made it especially significant. But it was like my friend's girlfriend was there and uh, she was aware of it because we were, we were going a lot of places together. And these things kept happening, like running into the same people in completely different places, multiple days in a row, the same songs, the same references, just popping up like mad. But for whatever reason, this friend of mine was just like, no, it's a matter of probability. No. And even though it happened repeatedly the entire trip, for whatever reason, though, he just didn't want to acknowledge it. And, and not in the same way that the Buddhists would caution you not to be attached to it. It was like he didn't want to acknowledge that it was happening. And I don't entirely know why. But again, like with that girl, it's not my business to know why. Because the worst thing you can do in that situation is try to push it even further and go, no, I'm here to talk to you about the synchronicity we're experiencing. You end up weird. And that sounds really weird. So you never want to do you never want to force it because that's that goes against the whole nature of it. It's just it's for some reason that's necessary sometimes. 
And that could be me in another situation. Maybe somebody has a story like that about me where it's like, oh, all this weird stuff was happening. And Eric was just like, fuck you. Just fuck you. You know, maybe somebody else has a story like that. Maybe you don't even know it when you're doing that. But it's, it's almost like closing the gate. It's almost like I'm locking my door and closing the gate. But I do have to say, when I have experienced that with people, I get the feeling they're scared of it. I get the feeling like they, not like they're scared of something bad coming of it, but just like it's almost too much for them to handle. And maybe it is. You know, I was just talking a second ago about how sometimes certain experiences can be sort of a tipping off point where someone loses their mind over that stuff. Maybe those people were in a very sensitive psychological state and having to contend with anything except the most practical understanding of reality would be a tipping off point where they just freaking lose it for a while. And so they were just taking care of themselves. I mean, it could be as simple as that or not. Who knows? <laughs> but anyway, we all have our own take on it. But I don't mind that. I don't mind somebody kind of being guarded. What bothers me is when someone responds angrily because they think it's stupid to think that way. When they think, no, this can be explained by mathematical probability. This can be explained by this. It's when someone thinks they have the explanation for it and that your understanding is wrong, especially when you don't even have an understanding, when you're not trying to explain anything, because this is where the secular atheist thing comes in, where that form of thinking, and I'm not describing every atheist, I'm not describing every secular person, but there's a certain sort of person, the Reddit mind, the sort of person who spends too much time on websites like Reddit, there is a certain sort of person, and if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But if you even mention anything that falls outside of the realm explained by science, and it is explained by these people rather than described, but if you just describe an experience or you acknowledge a shared experience, they will sometimes be so quick to argue and shut you down, and it's angry. And again, there's that sense of fear but it almost seems to come from this place of, no, 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 I have this understanding of the nature of reality, and this is the way it is, and I think you're on the verge of straying outside of that. I think you're going outside of that. And so I'm going to shut you down and say, no, it's just a matter of mathematical probability. But once again, you don't press it. You know that that's not a conversation you can have, and you don't need to. But it does piss me off. Still, it always piss me off. It will always piss me off when someone has that sort of contemporary narcissism, especially when that same person turns around and is like, you ever think that maybe we're living in a computer inside a computer? It's like people who have psychedelic experiences and they get out there and they're like, oh, I figured out that uh, oh, I took DMT. And I kind of understood that I just need to relax more. And I saw this vision of something, but how dare you believe in God? How dare you believe in God? How dare you believe there's some sort of greater connectivity between ourselves and the universe and everything else that comprises our universe? How dare you visualize that as Indra's net? Do you really think there's a bunch of jewels reflecting each other? Not really, but that's a pretty good illustration. 
<laughs> How's that? That's a phantom I think about sometimes. That's one of my main phantoms is that person. So quick to shut you down. Even when they don't know what you're actually saying, even if you're not saying anything, there's a defensiveness, there's a guardedness, but also an anger to it. And some of those people, it, it almost seems like they're getting somewhere. It almost seems like they're coming to some understanding that might not be the same as yours, but they are coming up with their own placeholder terms, but they're, they're going to split hairs with you if you acknowledge it. Like if you have an eschatological view of your own and someone's talking to you about climate change and you say, oh yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, I think that there might be an imminent apocalypse too. I don't know. I don't really think about that much. I don't think it, I don't think it aids me to think about imminent apocalypse. I don't see any use to that, but I do think about it. I don't know what I, what I actually believe, but, uh, you know, if someone were to be like climate change, it's, we thought it was 20 years from now. It turns out in 10 years, the world's going to be a miserable hellhole. And you need to stop eating meat and you need to stop driving your car and you need to recycle. And if you were to say, yeah, you know, I think those are all good things to do. Maybe some of them, some of the things you're saying, I think are just generally good things to do. Even if the planet lives forever, even if climate change just disappears tomorrow, I think some of the recommendations you're giving are just good for our overall quality of life, whether our lives, whether our lives are five minutes long from now or 500 years or a million years, whatever it is. I think some of the recommendations make sense to me, reducing our carbon, reducing our carbon, what we call reducing our carbon footprint. I think some of those ideas are great just on their own, no matter how you frame them, even just as general life advice outside of eschatology. But you know what? I think there might be something to your apocalyptic prophecy too. And they'd be like, it's not an apocalyptic prophecy. It's climate change. It's like, well, isn't climate change an apocalyptic prophecy? No. It's like we could find common ground here. I agree that reducing your carbon footprint is a good idea. And I agree that some form of, of apocalyptic scenario is not entirely unrealistic. But you got to use their words. And you have to shriek. You got to shriek. I mean, similar to evangelicals, like, if you keep doing those horrible sins, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. You know, it's like they shriek at you about it. And it's like, I agree. But you know what those sins? A bunch of them actually uh, match up to the Buddhist precepts. I'm not a Buddhist, but I can't help but notice that Buddhism tells you to avoid sexual immorality. It tells you not to consume sloth-producing drugs or drink. It tells you not to kill your fellow man. A couple, a couple of the others, too. The five, Buddhist pre, the five Buddhist precepts are analogous to the Ten Commandments in certain ways, at least some of them. But somebody wouldn't necessarily like that. It's like people don't like comparisons. Like, it's not the same. It's not the same. It's an analog. 
But people don't seem to want to find that common ground, even though it's there. And I'm not saying you have to have a syncretic view where, oh, I, my, my faith? Oh, my religion is like kind of a collage of a bunch of different religions. Well, you just need to commit to Catholicism. You need to just commit to Buddhism. You need to commit to Islam. Spiritual but not religious, Ugh, as if you're going to get anything from that. Oh, you're a libertarian, you're an independent, but not a Democrat or Republican? Ugh, good luck with that. You know what, actually, you're my enemy. Because you're not willing to commit to my... Because you're not willing to commit to being my friend or my enemy, you're just my enemy. A lot of people have that attitude. Because you're not willing to commit to my religion or that other religion or my non-religion, which is turning into a religion as time goes by, well, you're just my enemy. Funny how that works. It's okay, though. We learn something through those interactions. Not to be lame about it. We learn from everything. But no, it's true. We learn from those interactions. Just like you learn from that person who you experience synchronicity with, and they're just like, no, it was a matter of mathematical probability. You just go, okay. Isn't that cool too, though? <laughs> you know, when someone goes, it's just a matter of mathematical statistical probability that these things came up five times in one day in really weird, unique circumstances. Isn't that cool on its own? Can we acknowledge that that's cool? Are we allowed to acknowledge that probability is cool unto itself? And is probability fundamentally different from synchronicity? Isn't probability a sign of interconnectivity too? The fact that these things exist in a place where probability can bring them together sometimes, even if there's some sort of formula, even if there's a one out of 120,000 chance that these things would come up together. Isn't that a sign of interconnectivity too? And the fact that they did come up together? Doesn't that prove it? So even if somebody offers some other explanation for what is happening and why, I don't know that it really takes away from the greater point. Or just one of the points, whatever it is. I don't think that when someone says, maybe we're living in a simulation, I don't think that takes away from the Maya. I don't think that takes away from the Dharma. I don't think that takes away from nihilism, someone who just says, nothing's real and nothing matters. I don't think any of that negates any other interpretation or placeholder word that you could apply to a, a similar sentiment. I don't think any of it negates, I think it just adds to it. I think it adds to the idea that we can all find this. The problem is, is when people become dogmatic about it, which is why when someone says a simulation, I kind of roll my eyes because it's like, if the only way that you're gonna understand this is by thinking of it as a computer within a computer, okay, that's something. And I get what you're saying. It's not that I don't get it. It's not that I think it's stupid. Kind of. I kind of do. But it's very, 
it's an it's a, a byproduct of contemporary narcissism to think that that's some new revelation and to think that your description of it is the description and that somebody else's description is not the description that's kind of the issue I take with it it's overconfidence it's blind spots it's audacity it's hubris that's the issue I take with all of this and I'm sure someone could find more and more examples of this the more they look around the more they pay attention the more they study the more they read the more they simply experience life because guess what it's easy to forget that that's where all this comes from oh that's something that somebody wrote in a book something somebody experienced and then wrote in a book it's something that many people experienced and then wrote in a book but you know what you don't even have to read the book to experience it you yourself can experience it all you have to do is acknowledge it because that's what the people who wrote it down were doing they were simply acknowledging it but like some of them have done they'll tell you acknowledge it but don't acknowledge it too much don't get too focused on it because that can sidetrack you for sure oh we're living in a simulation that's one interpretation that's one way of looking at it don't get sidetracked by that oh nothing matters and nothing's real I'm a nihilist maybe but don't get sidetracked by it acknowledge it don't let it preoccupy your every waking moment we're living in the Maya again but we still experience pain we still know that even if this is illusory there's something to be said for doing the right thing or at least trying to we're still experiencing something And you know that yourself if you've ever played a video game and cared about progressing the story and beating it. Like you don't play a video game and go, oh, this sucks, who cares? You actually get very invested. Look at the way people react to video games. Look at the way people smash their controllers, scream expletives. Dude, it's just a game and that's the last thing they want to hear. So it's not that you shouldn't be invested in it. You're going to be invested in it. You're going to feel incredible sensations. You're going to feel horrible sensations. You're going to love people. You're going to hate people. You're going to want to do some things and not do other things. It's a very interactive illusion. <laughs> you know, it's a very interactive simulation. For a false reality, it sure feels like something. And it's all we know. There's no alternative. We don't even know what non-existence is. We don't even know what death is. So the idea is not to just throw it all away. The idea is not to dismiss it. The idea is to understand that maybe you are playing a game of some kind. 
And that's just one way of understanding it is to think of it as a game. It's not that it is a game. That's just a way to understand it. It doesn't mean you can't care about the game. I care about the game. And during the brief moments when I don't care about it, I often want to care about it. When I'm like, oh, you know, whether I'm feeling really good or really bad, when I'm not caring as much, sometimes I think it'd be really nice to care right now. And you'll have plenty of opportunities to do that. Whether this is a web of illusion, whether it's a computer simulation within a computer simulation, no matter what it is, you'll have plenty of opportunity to care. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.